Coming up on Leading Edge. So the piece of music has a shape, it has a key, it has a tempo. But if you buy into those three things, you can then start to experiment and improvise. The, the principles that he's thinking about as a musician are expressed in everyday language that execs can think about as well. This is Leading Edge, a Henley Business School podcast. Welcome to Leading Edge, a new podcast from the Henley Business School. I'm Thomas Mason, and in this series, we'll be equipping you with the latest tools and management thinking to thrive in the workplace of 2030 and beyond. We'll be tackling topics as varied as gig leadership or taking turns at the tiller, what to do when you realise you're working for a robot, why CEOs are still not listening properly to their boards, why diversity is not only skin deep, and how to keep staff engaged at work. And I'm joined today by Dr David Pendleton, who's not only a professor in leadership at Henley Business School, he's a chartered psychologist to boot, and also a keen musician. And he's here today to tell us about how he combines all of the above in an intriguing concept called leadership jazz. Now, my understanding, David, is this has got something to do with finding the right note when there is no plan. I'm sure if you're listening, you're as keen as I am to find out exactly what leadership jazz is. So take it away, David. Well, we'll give the musicians a little time to get into their groove. Leadership jazz works with four different scenarios and tries to help people get used to the idea that they've got to work in a semi-structured way in a world which is essentially unpredictable. And we give people opportunities during those times to experiment, to rehearse, and more importantly, to improvise. And in order to do that, we give them structures to work with and exercises to practice all with the intention of giving them an opportunity to live in a different world than the one they're used to, a world of essential unpredictability and informed by music. That's leadership jazz. So I understand leadership jazz, you help at certain points in the journey with a corporate team. Maybe you can talk us through some of those. Yes, that's right. Uh, Leadership jazz really tries to get people to think a bit about how they handle change. And we we start to get them to think a bit about the kinds of changes that they have to face. And what I try to do in the middle of that is to show them a kind of little two-by-two matrix that says, look, you can be dealing with changes that are predictable or unpredictable, and you can also deal with changes that are are fast-acting or give you a bit more time to react. And so I've tried to get them to think about four different change scenarios, which I call evolve, rehearse, experiment and improvise. Excellent. So there's four of those. I believe you're more keen on some of them than others about where you can put in your special source, David. Well, absolutely, because it seems to me that the jazz musicians are particularly good at helping people understand rehearse, experiment and improvise. And so we tend to let evolve simply evolve and we, we focus on the other three in workshops on leadership jazz that we get executives to come through and experience a series of exercises that puts them in the scenario um, briefly so that they can reflect on it and their responses to it. So if I'm thinking about how I rehearsed perform something, what what is this, a sort of disaster planning? How What route does this one go down? Well, it's interesting you should mention disaster planning because I think actually that's one of the scenarios that people do actually have to rehearse. You know, when you think about what happened to BP in the Gulf of Mexico, they tried to have 
a very carefully rehearsed plan for what to do in just that kind of eventuality. But when it actually blew, they found that their plan was something like 10 years out of date and they tried to contact someone that was in the plan who'd been dead for a number of years already. So it's very hard in the rehearsed scenario to make sure that you can uh, take account of all of the changes that happen all of the time. So on its own, it may not be terribly effective unless you can also experiment and improvise. Right, so maybe just talk us through then how you might help somebody with that scenario. Well, what we want them to do is to reflect on the nature of the contribution as leaders that they're best able to make and most comfortable making. So in the workshop, what we do is give them an opportunity to experience those three scenarios uh, very deliberately, but also very briefly. In the case of rehearse, we tell them that the essence of a rehearsed response is it's already prepared. No one's going to ask you for your opinion. You know, as they say on the aircraft, if this aircraft should land on water, you must do the following five things, one, two, three, four, five. No one's going to ask you, you know, who wants to go first. Someone will take charge and they'll give you clear instructions. So we said, do you understand that that's a rehearsed scenario? And normally people will politely nod yes. And so we say, right, on your feet, we're going to teach you a song and a dance and you get no choice. You're going to do this stuff. Um, and so we do it always with a big smile on our face. And once they've got over the first shock, they get into that mode of someone else is in charge and I've got to fit in. But then after that, we give them an opportunity to uh, reflect on that experience. How comfortable were they being being kind of powerless? How comfortable are they uh, taking control of a rehearsed scenario if they have to do so? And to what extent do they feel they give of their best in that kind of setting? Well, it's interesting that you should mention aircraft, David, because I was came across a situation the other day, and this is about some extreme weather conditions the UK might be experiencing now and into the near future. Uh, this is how to land an aircraft in sideways winds, in high winds and crosswind. And actually, there's a company in, in Gatwick Airport that's developed a flight simulator to help people rehearse for this scenario. So the basic idea is you've got the wind coming from a direction that's not right down the runway, the nose of the aeroplane drifts, uh, and then it's allowed to drift into the wind. And what you end up is this effect of the aeroplane being offset, almost looking like it's sort of crabbing across the ground sideways. So it looks like the aircraft is flying sideways, but it's all part of the plan. And that is actually the safe, best way to land in a sidewind. So it just got me thinking, is your leadership challenge, is it a bit like a sort of flight simulator for leaders? Well, it, if you think about that example, it's a lovely example, because what that, what that has done is someone else has worked out the best way to handle that crosswind. And then you get things like wind shear, which is where, the, where the, the wind moves around as well. But someone's worked out how best to handle that as well. And, and what's more, not only do they tell you how to do it, but they also give you lots of opportunities to practice doing it so that the first time you handle a situation like that is not your first time ever uh, encountering that kind of phenomenon. So rehearse is, in a sense, a safe bet. But what happens when it's unpredictable is the real puzzle. And that's where jazz comes in. So back to that BP one, you say there was a scenario they thought about it, but they ended up having to improvise. Was that just a, a failure of corporate planning, really? It wasn't unforeseeable. There might be a major oil spill. Had they just not, not got it right? No, I think, it's, it, I think it's that if you've got a potential disaster on your hands, um, the amount of planning that you'd need to do to make sure that you were always completely prepared and rehearsed is enormous. And so what you need is for people to get used to working in this sort of semi-structured way. I imagine the, the BP scenario, but people are now comfortable in an improvisation or an experimentation setting. Improvisation is particularly helpful because what it allows you to do 
is to work with two guiding principles and nothing else. One is what is our purpose? What are we trying to achieve? Let's be really clear about that at any given time. And secondly, what are our values? And how does that feed into our priorities? If your values are genuinely held and you're crystal clear about your purpose, those become real guiding stars if you're left to improvise. And within any scenario, whether it's rehearsed or not, there will always be a little bit of unpredictability. It's how you handle that that might make the difference between success and failure. So let's move up to the more fun scenarios, if you like. We've yeah. got experiment and then improvise. Can you just give me an example of how experimenting can help teams? Yeah, sure. Uh, the scenario we're imagining there is that, that there is change emerging. You're not quite sure what it is, so you're dealing with unpredictability, but you've got a bit of time. I'll give you two scenarios in which this is happening at the moment. One is um, retail. If you're a retailer right now, we know that the internet is trying to eat your lunch. We know that bricks and mortar stores are really struggling on the high street, but you've got a bit of time to do something about it. Let's experiment, therefore, with formats. Let's experiment with locations. Let's experiment with a whole variety of ways in which we might vary the retail experience and thereby potentially extend the life of those uh, bricks and mortar assets. The second one would be insurance. Insurance has been done by primarily the same way for about 300 years since the coffee shop in London. But what we know is that the world of insurance is going online and changing hugely. So if you are used to the man or woman from the Prue coming to talk to you about your life experience and expectations, we know that there are people trying to do design digital disruptors that will put you out of business. So, But you've got a bit of time. So the question is, which direction do you want to take that experimentation in? And do you know how to experiment efficiently and well? So I'm an insurer. I'm thinking, how am I going to get the younger generation brought into my products, perhaps offer them a simpler experience, a less expensive experience? How, what would you suggest that they should be thinking about? Well, I'd suggest that what they should be thinking about is, firstly, how to incorporate those young people into the design of the products. Uh, you need to, with experimentation, there are, there are two or three distinct phases. And the first is a very broad phase in which you go out into new ideas and new possibilities. You, you extend the franchise into the people who you will talk to. You get the, as big a group as possible from as many different varied backgrounds as possible. And that creativity phase is the first part of experimentation. But at some point, you've got to narrow the options and go into a little bit more depth on a, on a subset of them and then ultimately decide which one you're going to, you're going to put into practice. You might run several in parallel, but you also need to know how to evaluate the data so that you then can make rapid changes to whatever experiment you've started. You mentioned a particular insurer, David, Young Marmalade. What are they all about? Why are they doing it well? Well, I don't, I don't know them personally, but, but what I understand about them is that they are, uh, they're trying to in, m create motor insurance for the young folks who get penalised with terribly uh, uh, punitive uh, uh, premiums. And they're trying to put technology into cars to allow their driving to be monitored so that the, the, the better risks can be get lower premiums. But the other thing they're doing is they're doing the whole thing online. And so there's no contact with anyone. There is simply you interact with a website and they pride themselves on the speed at which they will settle a claim. Apparently, it's, they've got it down now to several seconds, the, 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 the time that is between uh, making the claim uh, and the money appearing in 
in someone's bank account. Now, all of this is reputation, so I've no way of knowing whether this is true. But unless insurers are thinking about that kind of scenario, they won't be experimenting appropriately for that part of the market. That's very interesting, that one. So do you think that there's certain organisations where this approach works well? They have a flexible mindset, they, they try things, they're prepared to fail versus perhaps more rigid organisations where they like to write down every scenario and every rule? Yeah, I, I think that there's uh, what I describe as an adaptive mindset that we can encourage in organisations. And it's, it's got four very simple pieces to it. Resilience, in, in part, helps you deal with uncertainty and helps you deal with your own anxiety. But there's also the notion of curiosity. Are they, are they willing to try new ideas and investigate what's possible? Are they persistent? Do they not give up too easily? And, and finally, uh, part of the adaptive mindset is, are they willing to be collaborative? Because people will modify and improve each other's ideas if we can get that dynamic right as well. And, and the great advantage of thinking about those four things, resilience, curiosity, persistence and team working, is that you can a, recruit people who are more skilled in those areas, more capable in those areas, but also you can deliberately foster it in your organisation as well. If you're in certain professions, let's say you're a policeman or you, indeed you, you are maybe a, a, an air hostess, you, you can't just say, oh, I just did, I just felt like doing this. I just went off the grid. I just, you know, there are certain things by law under the rules that you have to follow certain procedures. So the question being then, how do those people fit into your framework of being able to experiment? How do you empower them? If you're a pilot, there's a standard operating procedure for, for landing the plane. Please don't play interesting games on that standard operating procedure because I'm a passenger and I don't want to hit the ground hard. You know, so, so if you've got a job where there is significant discretion about what you do and how you do it, leadership jazz is a nice way of thinking. If you've got an organisation that you need to steer into an unpredictable and uncertain future. But if you are relatively junior in the organisation, I would prioritise simply differently. I would talk about customer service, I'd talk about the values of our organisation and give people some feel for the kind of organisation we want to be. Uh, but of course, they're not going to be making big strategic decisions. And even if you are quite senior, your organisation might be quite risk averse. If you start experimenting, you might be seen as a bit of a maverick. So how do you build trust within organisations to, to actually go ahead and try different things? Well, you know, being trustworthy is an interesting one. And, and I think that it starts with competence. If you uh, are not trusted to be competent in your field, it's very hard to be trusted about anything else. But you also need to show that you give a damn, that you care about something other than your own benefit. And I think that if you get those things together, you, you typically will find that people are, are likely to be a little bit more consistent and a little bit more courageous. And if you can think about those factors, Trust is likely to follow. Of course, no discussion on leadership jazz will be complete without some music. So you've brought one some along, I believe. If you could just tell us who that is and what it's all about. Sure. This is a, a piece of music called Just One More Thing, and it's by Gary Aylesbrook and, and Friends. Um, uh, Gary is uh, an extremely uh, fine jazz and rock trumpeter who plays with Kasabian and many other uh, bands as a session musician. So he knows what he's doing and he knows what he's talking about. The thing that's beautiful about what Gary does is that he works with, as I say, semi-structure. So the piece of music has a shape, it has a key, it has a tempo. But if you buy into those three things, and you can then start to experiment and improvise within that framework, 
he'll talk about his intention, but what's in his mind at the time. So he's talking about trying to not be repetitive, how he's trying to find new ways through the territory. He'll talk about how he needs to trust the people who are in the band with him to cover for anything that he might think of as a blooper. If he does, for example, play a note that's not in that key, it's not unusual for, to hear it then re-emerge on the keyboards because Ruth Hammond, who's an extraordinary good uh, jazz musician in her own right, will want to cover for him and make him look good. So what I find that's intriguing, and, and certainly the execs find it hugely stimulating, is that the principles that he's thinking about as a musician are expressed in everyday language that execs can think about as well. But one of the things he also challenges them with is how much time do you spend practicing improvising? Um, right. And what you find, of course, is that people are not very good at it if they just get thrown into that scenario. But if they've practiced, if they've jammed, if they've played with other musicians, if they've been given opportunities to get lost in a piece of music, they will learn how to find their way through better. And so one of the key challenges in all of this is how much time are you prepared as a senior executive to make sure that your organisation knows what to do if, if it's a rehearsed scenario, what to do if it's an experimental scenario, what to do if it's an improvisational scenario, and then finally, of course, what does agility mean? It means being able to move between these as appropriate. Great, so that's leadership jazz. Um, and, and what if people are just, they don't buy it, they're, they're not very musical, they're very wooden. How, how do you get those sorts of people to, well, to get involved? Yeah, interestingly, they don't need to be musical. <laughs> what they need to be is clear thinking, uh, open-minded uh, and willing to experiment themselves. Uh, if they're not willing to go down an unexpected or unusual path, the chances are they're not going to be in our workshop to start with. So typically we've got people who are at least willing to, to give things a go. But the other thing that we try to do is to make sure that we create psychological safety for them. No one feels like a plonker in our workshops. You know, Even if they're singing and dancing, we're doing it together. And, and there's something in hugely supportive about people tackling uh, what could be a potentially embarrassing few moments, not more than a few moments, but doing it together somehow makes it OK. And the other thing is that no one is subject to ridicule. No one is, is, uh, is going to be singled out. What's going to happen is we're going to show the power of effective teamwork together. And the whole approach to leadership that we take is that it's very hard to be a complete leader on your own. How would you say leadership jazz is superior to some of those other team building activities, the sorts of ones we'd perhaps dread if you're in the corporate world, the, the, the paintball, the building the paper <laughs> tower. Why, why is singing together or, or playing, playing a trumpet, why, how is that superior? I mean, it sounds more fun to me. But... Well, then what we want people to do is to, we want to change the way people think in order to change what they do. Um, and so I, I don't think anyone would claim about paintballing that's going to change the way you think. Uh, but what we want people to do is to hold this model in their head of the different change scenarios that they're likely to have to lead the organisation through and feel that they're ready for it. So we want to simulate it in the workshop setting so that they can practice it and get comfortable with it and know which of those scenarios they really don't do well in. So they need someone else to lead that. Um, and so... Um, Business schools down through the years have been reaching for metaphors and analogies and, and models um, that, that allow people to take insight with them in, in, in very carefully packaged 
uh, uh, parcels and which are easy to remember and that they've experienced a number of times before. Um, and that will allow them to feel to some extent prepared for, in a sense, whatever unpredictability comes their way. I do quite like this suggestion of yours that sometimes you do get the wrong note, but you, you cover it up for the benefit of your colleagues. You're not, trying to, you're not trying to hide an error, but perhaps own it and work around it. Yeah, and in a sense, explore it to see where that takes us. So if, what if we do you know, play that note in that chord? Wow, that's interesting. That's a, then it's, it's become something different with a different feel. Is there something we can do with it? But we don't want to draw attention to it if it, if it doesn't go anywhere. But who knows, by exploring that, by taking that random element, we might find something new and different, uh, but only if we're prepared to make each other look good at the time. If, if we're covered in embarrassment and feel we've got egg on our faces, no one will learn. What they'll do is simply get defensive. So we want people to open up and feel supported. Do you think, looking at some of the Silicon Valley companies, the likes of Amazon, the Googles, they, they, they talk about failing fast, failing early in that kind of culture, lots of experimentation. Uh, have they got it right? Have they got the spirit of leadership jazz or is it, is it something else? No, I think, they've got, I've got, I think they've got a number of elements of it going very well for them. Uh, I think that the... The key is to abolish cynicism. The key to improvisation, remember, is purpose and values. Those are the two things that you can take with you into all scenarios. But if you don't believe them, they won't help you. So organisations, in my view, need to be really deeply sincere about those two things. Why do we exist? What are we trying to achieve together? And... Secondly, what are the guiding principles that we're all agreed we're going to use along the way? And do you think perhaps failure and improvisation, they're more of a dirty world in the British business context, the, the English one, we're a bit more reserved, less likely to experiment and fail? In a world which requires creativity and innovation, you have to redefine failure. Failure is not trying new things. It's not trying and failing. That's not failure. Trying and finding that something doesn't work is succeeding. The only real failure is not to try new stuff because you will die that way. Remember Darwin said it, it isn't, that the survival of a species is not to do with the strongest or the fittest. It's the quickest to adapt to change. Great. Well, that's Leadership Jazz. Thank you very much. What we're going to do now uh, is we're going to move to uh, a dream dinner party. And Darwin might be one of the people who you'd be interested in having, but we're going to ask you to name some business leaders. So I want to hear from you then, please, David. Three business leaders, dead or alive, that you would invite to your dream dinner party. Well, I've gone for three who are alive, uh, alive and kicking. Uh, I'd go for Dame Sharon White. I would go for... Uh, Sir Rod Eddington, and I go for Paul Polman. Right, well, Paul Polman, I'm certainly familiar with his work at Unilever, but could you tell us a bit more about Dame Sharon White? Yeah, I'd love to uh, have her at the dinner party because there are two themes I'd like to explore with her. She is a black woman who, in a world which is notoriously resistant to BAME uh, senior leaders, has broken through and has become extremely successful. She was a senior civil servant. She worked uh, in, for Tony Blair. Uh, she became the head of Ofcom and now has appointed chairman of the John Lewis Partnership. I would very much like to explore a first theme with, with her. How did she break through when so many people struggle to do so? 
Um, but the second thing I'd like to explore with her would be, what on earth are you going to do with the John Lewis partnership? You have, you have no retail experience at all. You know, what makes you think you can make a difference to it? And, and not so much what are you going to do in terms of strategy and tactics, but how are you going to decide what to do? Is she going to trust her own judgment uh, or is she going to widen the franchise? Because I would, I would want to try and at least nudge her in the direction of keeping the franchise as wide as possible for as long as possible, get as many smart ideas uh, to come her way before she decides what to do, even though she may feel she's pushed for time. But, but if she doesn't do that, my, my sense is if she trusts her own judgment too much and others too little, she will um, be at severe risk of being irrelevant because her, all of her experience takes uh, a completely different line from the one that is likely to succeed in retail right now. Someone who did break through into the establishment. Then just by his name, Sir Rod Eddington, if you can just take us through. I think he was a former CEO of BA, Cafe Pacific Airways and Ansett Australia, chairman also JP Morgan Australia and New Zealand. So he's got, he's got, more ti- he's got a lot of titles. So why, is this, why is this guy going to be interesting? Oh, he's interesting for lots of reasons. Firstly, he's a great friend of mine. And, uh, and, and Rod, uh, if there's a lull in the conversation at this dinner party, Rod will help, help me fix it. Well, that's really... <laughs> you can do it with him here now. <laughs> exactly, that's right. No, but Rod is, Rod is great. He, he's uh, bright as a button, got an encyclopedic memory. He's got this extraordinary CV. Uh, but the great thing about Rod is that when he took over at British Airways, remember, he'd just run Cathay Pacific Airways and he'd run ANSET, and then he came to BA. And yet he spent the first time, and I'm hoping that, you know, Dame Sharon would be listening at this point, because uh, I'll get him to talk about what did he do first? Well, the first thing he did was he went around and talked to anyone who had got 10 minutes to say, if you've got 10 minutes to talk to me, and it didn't matter who they were, he just asked them, what do we do well and what do we need to fix? And what started to happen, and he went all around the, the BA, various BA's facilities, uh, you know, you might think this is a guy who's run two airlines before and has been an airline guy for, for several decades. Why did he go and talk to people who were very junior about what needed to be done at BA? Well, it's because he trusted their judgment and he thought that they would have really smart things to say. And what he clearly also did was give room for their thinking in his thinking later. Um, and he became, um, he has become in, in British Airways uh, a real kind of breath of fresh air of someone who takes seriously the views of the people on the shop floor, the people who serve the passengers and so on. Um, and he, he did make a very significant turnaround to British Airways, who, when he took over in 2000, uh, had made almost no profit at all except for an odd sale that, disp- uh, that they made. Uh, and ten years, sorry, five years later, they, they had achieved their 10% margin, which was unheard of. Um, but he did it by taking people with him, and that was a tremendous achievement. Excellent. And then Paul Pullman, former CEO of Unilever. Yeah, that's right. Um, Pullman had an extraordinary track record at Unilever. You know, he, he returned 290% shareholder value in the 10 years he ran the organisation. So he was, by any stretch of the imagination, a remarkable leader, and he won a, a, a massively long list of awards for the quality of his leadership. Wall Street Journal, sort of European Business Person of the Year, etc. And there's a, I, I looked this morning just to, to, to check, and there, there are about 20 of these awards that he won over his time. Uh, but he did it maintaining the integrity of his values about sustainability. And he started to run into problems with the shareholders when he wanted to abolish short-term targets and only talk about long-term goals and targets. 
Um, and what he's done since le leaving Unilever is he's become an ambassador for the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, here's a man whose values matter to him. I'd like to know how he continued with that in, uh, in, in, in the job, which is very public in both Holland and the UK, worldwide, as CEO of Unilever. Yeah, for, for a long time he was, wasn't he? He was the poster boy, really, of how to take the environment seriously in some of the, the products, consumer products that Unilever makes, consumable products. Um, but, but then he was, as you say, forced out in the end by the activist shareholders. What, what went wrong for him other than this short versus long-term thinking? Well, the other, the other thing uh, that came to a head and uh, he didn't win on uh, was trying to move the headquarters from London to Amsterdam. Um, and uh, yeah, it was rejected. So I think he sort of felt, I've put 10 years in, I've returned almost 300% shareholder value, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've made my contribution, it's time for me to go. Do you think he was slightly ahead of his time, some of the issues he was talking about? I think he was about? miles ahead of his time. But I think that, that the world is rapidly uh, trying to catch him up. Right, well, we're going to look a bit more at that, that theme in a moment. But, but before we do that, what's on the menu at this dinner party? <laughs> oh, gosh, that's a, that's a tricky one. Um, I, I am trying to uh, move away from uh, red meat. I suspect I'd still be serving it, but I'd be doing it with, with more of a heavy heart. But, but I'd certainly sort of want to try and have something that uh, maybe reflected this sort of sustainability uh, goal in the long term. Right, so sort of fillet steak, but lots of vegetables. Almost certainly, almost certainly. We just have it very rare. Indeed, very rarely, I think is better for you. Excellent. Well, that, thank you very much, David, for those dinner party guests. You've given us lots of food for thought already, but I'm, what I'm going to ask you to do now, slightly away from the main topic of leadership jazz, is looking ahead to 2030, what do you think will be the biggest change to the way we do business? Well, you know, I, I work um, with a lovely organisation who come, come and join us in Henley from time to time called Tomorrow Today. And their thesis uh, is that an awful lot of what's going to happen tomorrow is already happening somewhere now, uh, but you may not be aware of it. And, and what I think is happening now, which will be really dominant in 2030, is the kind of re, uh, refocus on ethics and sustainability in the long term. And I'm not just talking now about the planet, although, of course, that's rather important. But I think that I think that customers will be reluctant to do business with. I think people will be reluctant to work for. I think investors will be reluctant to put money into businesses that don't take their responsibilities seriously. And that's not just to the environment, although, of course, that, that'll be terribly important as well, but also to the societies in which they they are find themselves um, and also the the communities who work for them as well. So my sense is that in 2030, Ethics will have made a massive comeback, uh, a bit like the kind of uh, dominance of um, certain ethical values in the 19th century when the big philanthropists you know, became convinced that the smart thing for them to do was to look after people. Well, I think that businesses are going to have to go back down that road, and, but now go down it much more uh, universally, much more ubiquitously than perhaps they have done so far. My sense is that ethics are going to be the issue. And as you say, this is something that in some senses has started already and it's look, looking like it's going to accelerate very much in pace. So the likes of BP, they're saying that they're not going to be purely reliant on fossil fuels. So even some of these so-called 
not so good companies, the bad ones for, for the environment, that if they're going to survive, they've got to find a way through, haven't they? I think that's exactly right. So I think if you you know if you're a tobacco manufacturer, if you're a if you're a fossil fuel company, if you're a a miner of of rare elements, you know I think you've got to think quite hard about what your long-term future is going to be about. Uh, when uh, I ran a consultancy for 20 years, we took the view that we were not going to work with tobacco companies unless the question they asked us was, how can we get out of tobacco? Uh, and they didn't. <laughs> so we didn't work with them. Uh, and that was simply because we wanted to take our focus around health. Um, so we did a lot of work with the health service and so on. But I think that businesses are going to have to make those tough choices because they need to stand by the values they declare. And, and, that, and there will be nowhere to hide in 2030. You know, we think that the, the Internet uh, and, and Big Brother, as it were, and, and, and surveillance is dominant now. It'll be more so in 2030. There'll be absolutely no secrets. So if businesses declare a value set and then don't live them, they're going to be punished. When the internet first came along, often it was from a retail perspective, what's the cheapest item? Um, how can I get it the quickest? But do you think now with young consumers coming along, they're actually a lot more concerned about the values of the products they buy? Yeah, I think that's dead right. Um, and my sense is that if you if you look at the way, for example, the Consumers Association evaluates products, uh, the, the, the dominant theme uh, has always been value for money and quality. Um, but the, increasingly, mark my words, there will be room in those reviews for issues like sustainability, like um, can this product be recycled? You know, to what extent is this a, a polluting product? Um, you know, and even though some of these things right now are quite expensive i'm sure that economics will kick in so for example i i drive an electric car just because I, I i i like the idea that we can do something positive about that now i'm looking forward to when they get a lot, a lot cheaper <laughs> yeah so I'm, I'm a big fan i'm an electric bike user myself in london but good, absolutely good for you good that, for that's you. that's good to hear so i think maybe conclude then there's maybe a, a fifth element of leadership jazz so we've got evolve rehearse experiment improvise and, and recycle maybe and maybe that's right funnily enough one of the principles of improvisation is recycling you you will you will create a theme and you'll come back to it and and, and that recycling is exactly there in in is in, in the improvised scenario there's only 12 notes on the stave well, you know, my, my, my Gary, this wonderful trumpet player, he always says, how hard can it be? There are only three buttons. Right, well, we've pushed quite a lot of the buttons today. So, Professor David Pendleton, it's been a fascinating discussion from the Henley Business School. Thanks ever so much for joining us here on Leading Edge. My pleasure. Next time on Leading Edge. Charisma is slowly becoming the cancer of leadership. So I much prefer the leader that is deeply aware of all the consequences and circumstances they have to face and have that capacity to listen, but most of all, help other people listen too. Leading Edge is a Henley Business School podcast. This episode was written and presented by Thomas Mason. Visit hly.ac slash leadingedge for more.